You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skavitsky. This week, we're joined by Lauren Huff-Williams. Lauren is the Executive Director of the Program for Inclusion and Neurodiversity Education, better known as PINE, an online platform which provides training and support to schools and districts committed to building more neuroinclusive schools. Lauren is an autism inclusion specialist, but first, she's an educator. She began her career as a special educator for the New York City Department of Education before working for over a decade to define, refine, and expand the NYU ASD NEST support project. Her development process includes partnering with neurodivergent community to shift the paradigm in special education from a focus on deficit to a focus on strengths. From Lauren's experience working with educators, she has seen the Those who know better can do better. She's committed to helping school systems understand the needs of their neurodiverse students so they can build inclusive classrooms where everyone can thrive. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you on this this discussion. Um, Before we get into the meat and potatoes and start talking about, you know, how we can be better in in this venture, Tell me a little bit about what brought you into the field of autism and and more specifically, the passion that you have for empowering the neurodiverse community. Great. Yes. Well, you know, uh, thank you for that intro. And and as you mentioned, you know, I'm a former special education teacher from uh, the New York State Department of Ed. So I taught in um, Brooklyn. I taught in Manhattan. um, And my goal was was actually always to work with autistic students. Um, so in fact, when when I was in the New York City Teaching Fellows Program, um, I begged them to put me into um, what they called District 75, which was at the time where many of the autistic students were being educated. Um, luckily, they they completely ignored my request, and so I found myself uh, working in inclusion classrooms, um, specifically in uh, the New York City Department of Ed's uh, ASD Nest program, Mm -hmm. uh, which is the largest inclusion program for uh, autistic students uh, in the country. And so that's where I I got to see firsthand the the power of inclusion. So I taught for many years in that program. And then I actually went to NYU, where I was that program's director of professional development. So I started really working with educators uh, to help them better understand how to support their autistic students specifically in an inclusion setting. Well, I think that's a good place to start because when we're talking about inclusion, and it sounds like you've lived the gamut. I mean, you've seen it all and you've seen that probably that term has defined itself over time a little bit differently than when you started. But I look at what I'll talk locally and what my experience is with um, with my daughter's high school and um, and even beyond that with the the kind of area that I'm living in is that inclusion for them is having somebody in a building. It's having somebody sitting in the classroom, but never really figuring out how to be able to make them a part of their community, contributing into the community and being valued and respected in that community. What, how would you define inclusion, where it started, 
to where it is now? Because I think that that's something that we all need to think about as we're going through this conversation. Yeah, I think that's I think that's such a such a great point. Um, and you know, for for a very long time, and and even still now, people think about inclusion as a place. There is an inclusion room. There is an inclusion teacher. There is one inclusion in program. Um, and really, where we need to get to, and where where some districts and some schools have gotten to, and others are still kind of striving for, is inclusion is a mindset. Um, it is it it really it really is something that has to infuse every single staff member, every single space. It has to be core to the strategic priorities of any of any school um, because it's not something that only happens when it's connected to one classroom or when it's connected to one to one teacher. Um, and I think historically, Many uh, autistic students, many neurodivergent students have been in very segregated settings, right? Either in what we would call in a in a public school setting, a 12 to 1 to 1 class um, or in other segregated settings where the assumption was this disabled student cannot possibly learn alongside their general education or their neurotypical peers. Um, and we're put in the position where they had to prove that they could be successful in a general education setting. Um, and that really violates the, the human rights of those students. Everyone has, act, has, has the right to um, access the general education curriculum in whatever way is best for them. Um, but oftentimes we don't give our students that that opportunity. And so in in today's inclusion classes, what I want to see and what I would expect to see is that disabled and neurotypical students, general education students are learning alongside one another. They're learning from one another. That diversity is embraced and it's also understood by all of the staff members. It's not just the purview of that single special education teacher that's in the building or that one SLP who seems to be particularly well versed in that space. Yeah, and I, I would love to be able to come back and we're going to hit on this more on, you know, the educator's role, the administrator's role, the community's role. But before we go there, and this might be a brief question, I, I'd love to hear your input on when teaching the students about inclusion should be started, because as much as you can empower all the teachers and, and the administrators, the community is students. And if they don't understand the value of every individual, if they don't understand the contributions that could be made by a variety of different people in an environment, then the system, it seems like it would be doomed to fail. So when do you start working with the students on something like this? Day one. Day one of every single grade in every single classroom. You know, I think that oftentimes teachers and it comes from a place, I think, of discomfort because it's oftentimes not part of their their pre-service training or their ongoing professional development to learn how to really talk about disability and neurodiversity and neurodivergence. And because they they don't always have the the words and the frameworks to to kind of speak from, they don't know how to talk about this directly with with students. And therefore, it becomes something that, that is unspoken. And when things are unspoken, they're misunderstood. This is where we get a lot of bullying. This is where we get a lot of marginalization and, and distrust. And so when you don't understand why that one student is being pulled out for speech, 
when you don't understand why that student in the in the corner gets an iPad and they they talk through their iPad, but that doesn't that's something that you've never seen before. When you have the student in the classroom who who is is making a lot of vocalizations and is moving a lot in the classroom, but you don't know why and no one is talking about it. I think that's a real that's a real source of of confusion and puts our our neurodivergent students in a really vulnerable position. But imagine that classroom, kindergarten, third grade, seventh grade doesn't matter, where difference is discussed. It's explored. When you're on that kindergarten rug and the teacher notices that you got a wiggly bunch of kids in one corner, teacher stops everything and says, you know what, I'm so sorry. We never stopped to talk about what each of your bodies needs in order to learn best. I should have said, I should have asked, you know, so for me, this is what I need in order to learn best. I learned, I learned pretty well in a chair. So this is working for me, but you know, Andre, how about you? What do you feel like your body needs? Is that rug spot working for you? Or do you feel like you need something else? Let's just talk about it rather than having students struggle, having other students observe that struggle and having it normalized that that's not something we discuss. That's something mm -hmm. that we kind of push off to the side. Is, is that is that the the first kind of uh, education point, the first breaking of, of barriers to understanding that we don't need to approach the world with a one size fits all model. We don't need to approach telling everybody that if you're not doing it my way, you're doing it wrong and there's something wrong with you for that. And even the construct of ableism, is that is that where this kind of can start being broken down even before you start changing your support strategies in the school, just being educative, aware, transparent, talking through things, understanding and celebrating instead of pointing out and maybe marginalizing. Is there is is that the is that the first step to looking at how you're empowering every person and every quality of every individual in the classroom is just talking about it with the students? You know, I want to say yes, but in order to talk about it, you need to have a really solid understanding and awareness of neurodiversity and of difference. And again, you know, oftentimes this is not something that many educators have any experience with. And in today's classrooms, every single classroom is a neurodiverse community. It doesn't matter if you think that you are in a gen ed class, if you think that you are an inclusion class, regardless, you have a neurodiverse community. We also have a neurodiverse community of educators. We have neurodivergent educators in all of our schools and we don't talk about it. And so before we bring it into our classrooms, before we talk about it with our students, we have to raise the professionals understanding and awareness of neurodiversity. And so in, you know, in, in our program in, in Pine, one of the one of the one of the things that we really want to break and focus on is it's not enough to just train the magical special education unicorn or that one SLP or that one school psychologist. Um, when we do that, we perpetuate this belief that is only the few specialists that are able to support and understand and create a, a, a community of belonging for our neurodivergent students. What we really need to do is make sure that every single professional in that school building has an understanding of neurodiversity and understands and is excited about their neurodiverse school community. That means every gen ed teacher, 
every physical education teacher, every science teacher, uh, everyone who's working in the main office, the custodial staff, the lunchroom staff, all of the paraprofessionals that are supporting our students, everyone needs to have a solid understanding of what neurodiversity is, what are some of the traits and characteristics of neurodivergent students, coming at this work from a strength-based perspective, not saying here are all of the things that this student is going to struggle with, but instead recognizing the, the things that these the, the, this community of students often does really well, finding ways to embrace their, their interests. And most importantly, all of this work needs to be done by centering the voices of neurodivergent experts. So if your school wants to learn about autism, about ADHD, about dyslexia, you need to go to the people with lived experience. So go to your autistic experts and say, what do you wish educators understood about autism? And listen. And oftentimes in, in teacher professional training, those are not the voices that are centered in the work. And in, in Pine, all of our content is developed in collaboration with uh, neurodivergent experts. And I think that it offers a very unique and important um, learning path for all of our educators. Uh, because if you're going to talk to that autistic student, if you're going to connect to that neurodivergent student in your classroom, you need to have a really solid understanding um, of what neurodiversity is and, and, and having uh, learned that from your neurodivergent experts. I, I appreciate that more than more than you can understand is that um, I've had the, the benefit of being a part of community informed programming, which I think pulls off a lot of what you're talking about is making sure that everybody's involved in the decision making. Everybody's involved in prioritizing. Everybody's involved in trying to feel what is the best decision. And oftentimes the people left out of the discussion are those with lived experiences. And by bringing that into the discussion, now you can say, OK, this is what's been prioritized by the person who's lived it. Now, resources, talk with them and figure out how to incorporate it, how to be able to strengthen. But to do that, you mentioned um, moving from a deficit-based system to a strength-based system. And my experience with, with schools historically, and I think it's shifting, but historically has been, let's do assessments to figure out what's wrong. Let's do assessments to figure out where all the gaps are rather than let's do assessments to understand where this person excels and where we can help them to leverage all the strengths that they have to really drive a community versus sit in the back seat of the community what what changed that over time and maybe you can give us some examples of you know what that actually looks like in practice when somebody does it right Mm -hmm. Well, I think that this shift, you mentioned this, this shift to the social model of disability, which I think, I think you're right. I think we're, we're seeing more of it, but there's still, there still is a, a predominant focus on the more medical model of, of disability. And, uh, you know, I know when a, a school, an organization or a community has really successfully transitioned to more of a social model of disability when, for example, they're not looking at the student as the problem, right? This is this this is the problem. This is the problem that needs to be fixed. Um, and rather, they're looking at how do we create an environment 
where this student is successful. Um, and again, when I think back to my own teacher professional development, my pre-service training before I entered the classroom, um, I was trained to be a, a deficit detective, right? I could, I could look at any student and I could hyper-focus in on all of the things that that student can't do and then like a checklist, I would just go through and say, okay, so now we're gonna work on this thing that you that you struggle with and then this thing and then this thing and then this thing. And I'm just gonna reinforce every time they do this really hard thing. Um, my, my mentor at NYU, uh, Dr. Christy Patton always says, and I hear her voice in my mind all the time, you know, no one builds their life on remediated weaknesses. Right. And yet that's oftentimes where we're really focused in on as, as educators is all the things kids can't do. Um, but what if we make that shift? What if, what if we stop looking at the student as the problem and instead look at the system around the student that we have control over and say, what are the proactive um, supports that I can put in place so that this student is more successful? This student feels an authentic sense of belonging. This student um, actually has the supports that they need in order to participate and to feel fully included. Um, and I think that's that's a big shift. Um, you know, we're, we're not focused on fixing the child. We're focusing on fixing the system that in that moment was not accessible, was not um, inclusive and was not kind of accepting. Um, and I think the other the other the other shift you know, I always know when when I'm looking at a system that has more of a social model of disability is, again, when the expert in the in the in the room is first and foremost, the student is the expert of their own experience. And then second to that, when when folks are looking to the neurodivergent community to get a foundational understanding of the students kind of needs and, and profile. And only after that foundation is established, do we then kind of layer in some of the neurotypical professionals perspective. And, and I should say, you know, I come to this work as a neurotypical person, right? And as such, there is only so much that I can know because I don't have that lived experience. So if you're working at a school and you're on a team and you're, you're trying to figure out how do you best understand and support this new student that you have, who let's say they're, they're on the spectrum, um, you must find a way to incorporate the expertise of those with lived experience, right? Social media is full of, of amazing experts that, that folks can go to listen to them, learn from them, and figure out how to better uh, create a, a truly inclusive experience in, in your classroom or in your, in your learning environment for that student. And you highlighted that the guide to that decision-making is the individual who is living the experience and they should be the professional in that, um, which I think is, is spot on. The, um, the question then comes into play and, and I, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I'm neurotypical, but at the same time is that like everybody else in this world, I have gaps in what I'm strong at, things that I'd love to strengthen. Um, and with that is that I need to figure out how to use my strengths to continue to build on areas where I want to excel. Is that where resources come into play for a um, neurodiverse person in the school setting is saying, you know, their goal leads to this. This is what they've stated they'd really want to do. We have now done a strength-based assessment. We know what we're really good at. Now, let's try and figure out how to be able to use those strengths to help them achieve their next goal, which sometimes is 
resources, like you said, is that a speech pathologist might be involved. Um, it might it might include um, having a, a peer mentor or, or social groups involved. It, it could involve other things, but the decision making on on what's important and how to get there needs to include all stakeholders involved, and that's oftentimes the person receiving the care. Um, is that is that the way a strength-based system works in the in the school setting? Is that driven through it, an IEP process where you're actually talking about these things? You know, I think in an ideal world that would be wonderful. But the IEP, first of all, the, those conversations happen what once a year, right? And so, the, and that's not enough. And so, I do think there needs to be more ongoing conversations with students' full teams about. What is this student really excelling at right now? What are the areas of progress that we really want to build on? And then obviously, what are some of the what are some of our next steps that we want to kind of we want to work together um, as a group on, including the student in that, figuring out kind of what's our next step in order to help you feel and be more successful um, in this in this learning environment. Um, and so again, focusing on the needs of the student, centering their perspective in all of this work. Um, and not always just prioritizing or sticking to the way we've always done things, right? And I think that this is where a lot of our neurodivergent students get get a little bit stuck, um, or or they run into challenges, or they're kind of left behind. Is when we're trying to to fit that square peg in a round hole, and in the process we're damaging the peg, right? When what we need to do is really step back and and figure out, okay, so. What is this student really, really great at? What is this student really gravitating towards? What are some of the challenges that they're running into? And how can we proactively, again, kind of create the, the better experience for the, for the student um, that, they're all that you're all talking about? Um, you know, I, was, I remember I was working with a student who was just refusing to come to school. Um, and then when when he was coming to school, he was refusing to enter his classroom. Um, and and this was a this was this was experienced by the team as a you know quote unquote behavior problem. Um, and I use quotes around behavior because uh, you know I think we really need to reframe how we think about student behavior. Oftentimes behavior has a negative connotation because, it's it's how educators are experiencing just how the student is is existing in that space, oftentimes in a really inaccessible space. But but this quote unquote behavior is a source of information for us. This this is our student telling us um, what they need, what they're struggling with, um, and it's up to us to really step back and and listen. So you know, in this case, we have the student who's refusing to enter his classroom and. So the team is talking about, well, he needs to be suspended because he's not participating or, you know, um, we need to create some sort of um, incentive system. So he gets a check mark every time he goes into the classroom. None of these things were, were working and actually was just um, causing more stress about going into the classroom. And what I was really impressed with is this team really took a step back and they, they started with what this student loved. They started with, wait, what do we know about this student? What do we know that he can do really well? What if we began our conversations and our supports there? So one thing that came up in the conversation was the student loved the custodian. 
in, in the school, had a really nice relationship with the custodian. So they put a system in place where in the morning, the focus was not on getting into the classroom. The student followed the custodian and checked all the locks of the doors across the school in the morning. And that was his job. And that's how he spent his morning, had a really successful time doing this. Really nice relationship building with, with a, a school staff member. Um, the, the team also started to notice, you know, he seems to need a lot of movement, right? He, he, he really benefits from, from movement. So after he was finished collecting the, uh, checking the, the locks, he started collecting all the attendance folders, right? Which also was a little bit of classroom exposure, right? He was going into different classrooms, collecting the attendance folders, um, got to meet a bunch of people across the school and then would bring them back to the office. Um, in the meantime, what the his classroom teachers did is they reorganized the classroom with his needs and his interests in mind. So they set up a break area with some photos of favorite animals of his. They removed some of the visual distractions that they know were, were a little bit harder for him to, to, to manage. Um, they focused on the accessibility of the environment. And then as a, as a final step of, the, of, of of getting him comfortable in the classroom. They didn't have him come in and immediately begin to do work. When he was ready, he was actually allowed to sit in the break area and just read a preferred book first thing in the morning, right? Slowly working through his strengths, working through his interests to get him comfortable rather than trying to force him into a learning experience that was that was feeling really inaccessible to him. Uh, hearing, the, hearing that story, I mean, a, a few things just kind of popped at me right from the beginning. First of all, Got to meet the janitor. It sounds like this guy knows what what an inclusion actually is, and we had some there's training, value, respect. Right? Yep. <laughs> yes. But the the second piece to that is is that I, it it almost feels like by creating this opportunity and creating this different experience within the school by saying, you know, you don't have to go in and be sitting in there doing the typical homeroom. Now you have a role, a job. Now this other student's exposure to this, to the student that was being kind of having things modified slightly in, in their environment. Now their exposure to that child is completely different. They're not seeing the 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 frustration, the tantrum, the angst, the uh, inability to conform to their to their kind of society there. What they're seeing is Oh, this is Johnny who can walk from classroom to classroom. He's the attendance guy. Ah, hey, Johnny, how are you doing? Like now there's a relationship that can be built around something that was a strength as far as, hey, you know, I enjoy movement. I enjoy being out there. I enjoy a role. I enjoy having structure to a routine in the morning, whatever it was. And that is the part to me that kind of hits home is you just changed the dynamic of the way that people were seeing the student which now creates belonging versus creating this gap of either fear or misunderstanding or whatever could have been created in that other situation. Is that one of the biggest byproducts is that you're allowing somebody to contribute in a way that they have strength and that they that they're able to really show that they have so much to give back to their community that it changes the entire dynamic? I think that's I think that's part of it. I think all too often, we've put all of the onus on the child to conform to the system that's around them. And I think the big shift here is, you know, how do we create an entire learning community where the well-being of all students, neurotypical and neurodivergent alike, 
is is kind of prioritized. Um, and I think I think I would be remiss in in not talking in this in, in this moment about just the the ableism that is that is so rampant in our in our school systems um, and in ourselves, myself included. You know, ableism, the you know the this discrimination against disabled people. Um, negatively impacts all students, right? But especially our, our neurodivergent, our disabled students. Um, but it also impacts our neurotypical students, right? When they're growing up in a system where neurodivergent students, for example, are in a separate class, they are marginalized, they are misunderstood, they are undersupported. Um, and, and ableism, obviously, it comes in lots of different forms, right? It's There's institutional ableism where oh, you have an autism diagnosis, therefore you are in this segregated classroom, right? There's that, that interpersonal ableism, which I think shows up oftentimes with the best of intentions where the general education student is always the peer model and the disabled student never has the experience of being a leader, right? There should be, there should be equity. Every student can be a leader at, at different times. Um, and there's also that internalized ableism, which can be either conscious or unconscious in ourselves. You know, this harmful message that can be perpetuated around disability, where we talk about accommodations, for example, as a privilege and not as a right, right? So that student that really needs a fidget because they're a little bit squirmy, but they're having a hard time focusing. And so we say, well, I gotta take that fidget away from you because it's it's a distraction or it's distracting your, your peers. But, but that's something that that kid really needs. Or when we find ourselves talking about like, well, that student can't be in the gen ed class yet. They have to really prove that their behaviors are under control before they can enter that gen ed class. Right? Like that's a real problem. And it's again, mm -hmm. perpetuating that ableism that, that I think can, can really hinder us creating a, a truly inclusive and neuroaffirming um, environment in our classrooms and schools. Oftentimes when, when I have these discussions, um, it comes back to, you know, by living these tenants, by trying to say, you know, like this is this is something that's, yeah, it's good for the neurodivergent community. But to be honest, if I'm doing this across the board, this is good for everybody. I always put it back into looking at my own daughters and like, all right, there's there's parts of every piece of this that if this was immersed into their learning system, if this was immersed into their social fabric, they're going to become better, better people over time. And so and, and that's where I think that oftentimes we have this this gap in thought saying, well, it's got to be different for neurodivergent than for neurotypical. But in, in reality is that maybe how you get there is different. But the fact is, is that everything you just described would help my daughters through their process of every step of their their experience. So what does it look like to create this social model and maybe put it on the terms of social model of disability, but how do you how do you rewrite the framework? I mean, this is a big job. <laughs> it is a big job. It is a big job. And I think that there's there's obviously a lot of work that needs to be done at different levels. I think one of the one of the the key parts of this of this work and something we focus on really strongly, uh, as I mentioned before, in Pine is we have to empower all of the professionals to participate in this work because everyone plays a role in this work, right? So when the, the PE teacher is planning their lesson, they should have the tools um, and the understanding to 
create an inclusive experience for all of their learners, not to say, I'm going to plan for the middle and I'm going to hope that there's a paraprofessional who's going to provide some some differentiation for the students um, with IEP supports that, um, you know, they're not going to be the ones that I kind of focus on. And I think that if we don't give every professional a solid understanding of, of neurodiversity and the traits and characteristics of, of neurodivergent uh, kids and that collection of strategies that they kind of have they have in their pocket um, that they can go to to create a more inclusive environment, we're not we're not doing anyone any favors. So I think training everyone is is a big part of it. Um, I think another another shift that's really that's really critical is thinking about how can I build universal class-wide supports, really using that UDL framework. Um, all too often what happens, and, and we've all fallen into the trap, I've fallen into this trap still, is you see a student who's struggling and you focus in on, okay, so how can I create that intensive individualized support that helps this one student in this one moment. Um, and I think for a long time, that was what we were taught to do. And what we want to start to do instead is how can I put a class-wide support that I know is going to meet this student's need, right? That whole class schedule, that break area that every student has access to, those differentiated writing paper options, whatever it is, that I know this handful of students absolutely needs. I know this handful of students in my classroom may not need all the time, but could absolutely benefit from occasionally. And then what about these other students who they may not access that support that may not be something that's a priority for them but it's not going to get in their way right so i think thinking about that kind of universal design perspective is another thing that would be really that would be really key and it's less work right it's less work than having to be the octopus that is managing you know 15 different individualized systems and so at the end of the day it actually does make educators jobs hopefully a little bit easier yeah i mean and and you say that it's less work but it in somebody's mindset, it's like, hold on, now you're telling me to do something completely different. Change is hard. Change is not easy. You've worked a lot on being able to kind of develop some of this and some of these protocols and and the the steps to get there. Um, so, what what resources would you would you be turning a education system to um, or a community that's trying to be able to change the way that they're approaching? Um, a little bit more of the inclusive process. Where would you where would you be telling them to go to start making those small movements to being better? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think again, if you're looking to better support and understand your neurodivergent community, you should be going to neurodivergent experts. So there are a lot of resources out there that are free. The Autistic Self-Advocacy Network has some incredible resources for families, for schools. So I absolutely would, would recommend the, the resources that are there. There are other groups like understood.org or the Neurodiversity Collective. They have a ton of resources on that. Um, obviously, schools and districts who are looking at doing this work really system-wide you know, give us a call at Pine. Um, our website is uh, pineprogram.org. We support entire schools um, with online training, virtual coaching. Uh, we have a library of resources. Um, we really do feel like every single school, because every single school is a neurodiverse community, every single community member needs to be really well versed in, in neurodiversity so that they're they're ready to support. Um, 
I would also really recommend and, you know, even for I'm not a big Instagram person myself, but um, there are a ton of resources. There are a ton of um, uh, neurodivergent experts who are out there who are talking about neurodiversity, who are talking about inclusion, who are talking about here's what I wish people understood. So follow some of those folks. Um, uh, you know, get to know some of their work, um, ask them questions, reach out, connect. Uh, I think that's a great way to to begin to do this and to begin to build your understanding. Because as you said, look, it's it's not easy. You know, and, and inclusion is not something that happens overnight. It is not something that happens after one class. Um, and there is no there is no finishing it. Right. You're constantly trying to, to push the envelope and to say, you know, what else could I do? And look, change is hard. Educators are under a tremendous amount of stress now more than ever. And they're supporting a more diverse student body. And so if you're struggling with a couple of the students in your classroom and you're going home and you're stressed because you know you're not meeting their needs and, and what you've worked on in the past hasn't really worked, well, that's taking a lot of your time too. So instead, let's use that time and say, okay, so what are some universal supports that I can put in place um, that will help my student? Uh, be more successful and help me feel more successful in the process. I appreciate that, that you that you reiterated that this is a, a hard process. It's yeah. one that takes time to change. But I, I do think I agree is that it's the it's the mindset that you have to go in with. If we always feel like we're right and are unwilling to fail, to talk, to educate ourselves, to understand that you know, the best way to learn is talking with people who have experienced something and learn from that experience and it changes a mindset. I think that's that's got to be the first step to saying maybe not within the school, but societally is this. This is how we create an open society is by saying my experience is just mine. I'm, I'm one dot on the map here. Um, everybody's experience needs to needs to be valued the same way I would value my own. And just getting to that, I feel like every day I'm learning more in my own field. And quite frankly, I'm failing every day, but hopefully I learn from those failures. And that's the goal of life, <laughs> but probably the same with the education system is be patient, right? Be patient, be patient with yourself. Um, and unfortunately, and I, I hope this is changing, but you know, I think historically, Educators have not been encouraged to, to take risks, to try new things. Um, they've had their hands slapped lots and lots of times. A lot of people want to point to educators as, as you know, well, if educators would only just do this. And if teachers would only do that, teachers are under, they're doing, a, they're doing so much work. They're trying so hard. And I think we need to give them space to try something new, to sometimes make a mistake to sometimes fail at something. And that's a really hard, that's a hard place for anyone to be to be in, but it's a really vulnerable place for educators. And so I think sometimes when educators are supporting students that they've not worked with before, and they're, they're pulling out all their bag of tricks and nothing is working, they feel really unsuccessful. They feel really exposed. They feel really vulnerable. And they have this enormous sense of responsibility that you know, I need to find a way to reach this kid and everything I'm trying is not working. Um, and it's because they haven't had the training. They haven't had the exposure to students who learn and think really differently. Mm -hmm. um, 
and we've all made we've all made mistakes and i think all we can do is experience the mistake listen to the student reflect on your practice and and learn change you know i i've i've learned so many lessons from so many kids um and you know uh one of them that i will i will never forget um look i, I know that many autistic individuals, for example, um, are not comfortable with eye contact. Um, as a neurotypical person, a neurotypical person who's very type A, and I contend a little bit towards the intense side, eye contact is not something that I am uncomfortable with, but I know this about, about the community that I'm supporting. But I was in a classroom, I'm working with a fourth grade student, and it slipped out, and I said, you know, can you look at me or something like that, which I know not to do. I know that that's not comfortable for him, but I made that mistake. And he he looked right up at me and then looked away and uh, he said, Huff, I got to tell you, I can look at you or I can listen to you. You're going to have to pick. <laughs> and it was this it was this wonderful wonderful aha and it really locked it in for me. In that moment, I made a mistake. I, I, I was not supporting this student in the way that he needed to be supported. And thank goodness in that moment, he was able to self-advocate, right? And, and tell me what he needed. Um, but that's one of those things, right? Historically, we've been taught, um, oftentimes by neurotypical educators, that looking means listening. And therefore, we tell our students, you have to look at me. Well, that's something we need to shift. That's a mistake that I made. I hope to never make it again, um, although maybe I will, and I, I will learn this lesson as many times as it, as it takes. Um, but that's risky, right? It's, it's risky to try something new. It's risky to change the way that you've, typically, that you've typically done things. And so how do we create systems where educators are encouraged to try new things and to not always do the same thing year over year so that they can find new ways to better support the, the, the increasing diversity of students that they have in their classrooms? And I think those are words for educators to to live by and internalize is, um, you know, if you, if you don't take the risk, it's hard to get to that next stage. And status quo isn't always where you want to be. Like you want to be able to get better and better is better and keep moving in that direction. Um, I, I do want to hear just before we wrap up. I, so, Lauren, I'd love for you to just give us a little bit of, of guidance and demonstrate some of that empathy that you showed for the educators, because they're putting a lot of effort into trying to be able to change their system and it doesn't change overnight. But I, I do want to put into perspective how hard self-advocates are working to make sure that people understand their lived experience. And oftentimes is that that's not always heard or felt immediately. And what advice would you give to those self-advocates or to those families who are trying to be able to advocate for their children in the same way? Yeah, I think that's that's a really important question. Um, you know, I say we need to look to and listen to advocates, but oftentimes the spaces that they have gone into in the past, in those spaces, they've been told, oh, well, you're not disabled enough or, oh, you know, I don't think that school was that hard for you, or, uh, you know what, I don't think it was as bad as you're saying it was. And so there's a lot of gaslighting that happens. Um, that's a really unsafe space for many advocates to, to be in. And so one a recommendation, um, if I can offer one to, to any advocate is, 
Although it's really important that the neurotypical education community hears your voice, if you do not feel safe, if you do not feel that this is a that this is a safe space for you to be in, please don't do it. Right? Um, many many advocates have 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 had a lot of traumatic experiences um, trying to share their perspectives and not being seen. And the last thing I would ever want is for that to to continue. So, if it's not a safe space please don't enter it. We can find another way for, for your voice to be, to be kind of heard. Um, so I think that's, that's something that I've had. Um, I've had that conversation with, with many advocates um, who have said, you know, I, I want to push the system, but the system isn't safe for me um, and hasn't been. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't want that to, to kind of continue. Um, and then I think when I, when I think about families, right. And recommendations that I would have with families um, who you know, it's a second job to advocate for your child. Um, it's an incredible stress. You need to both push a system that is oftentimes feels a little bit immovable, um, but then you also need to then partner with that system at the end of that tricky meeting because these are the these are the educators that are working that are working with your child. Um, and so I think that's that's really hard. Um, one of the one of the stories I tell schools and I tell families is, you know, I went into into a classroom um, and the teacher said to me very, very proudly, you know, I'll bet you can't even pick the students with IEPs out of my classroom. Um, and I know what she was getting at, um, but man, you know, we're doing it wrong if, if our ultimate goal is to make our disabled students indistinguishable from their peers, right? That, that we've, we've gone off the rails here. And so I think we have to focus on and I say this to parents a lot, you know, we, we do have to let your kid be who they are. We need to celebrate the unique way that they navigate the world, um, even when the way they're navigating it is sometimes challenging, especially in, in a school system. But we have to make sure that we're focused on fixing the system, right? We're not focused on fixing the child so that difference is really recognized. And, you know, it's a feature, it's not a bug. Um, and that's what I have to kind of keep coming back to. Uh, not always easy. Um, but I think that's kind of an, that's an anchor for me. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing not just your experience and your knowledge, but also the passion that obviously you have and then put forward in this field. Um, and I and I hope that folks have a chance to learn from it. And I know that for me is that just watching the program that you've that you've helped to build, I'd love to see that start to permeate across not just kind of different regions of the country, but everywhere, because I think that there's value systems and mindsets that even if we can get a little bit of that, it goes a long way. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing. And hopefully we get to, to talk again and, and find another thing that you can educate us on. <laughs> Absolutely. Listen, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.